Peace be upon you. God willing, today I wanted to talk about a kind of serious subject matter, something that, you know, is a little dark, a little grim, but uh, it's definitely worth discussing. And the item is abortion. Abortion is something that it makes most people feel uncomfortable to discuss. And as a society, we need to basically elevate ourselves to have this conversation. Um, I believe it was Gandhi who said that you can tell the compassion of a society, a society by how they treat their weakest members. And when you think about it, you cannot get to a weaker member than the unborn child who has no voice and no uh, advocate. And as a society, we have to be able to speak on behalf of this child because no one else is going to. And the reality is there's a massive number of abortions. Uh, the, the, the amount of abortions are just mind-boggling. There's a website you can go to. It's called numberofabortions.com, and it breaks down some of the stats. So... Uh, as of today, this very moment, so it's about 3 p.m. on Sunday, there's an estimated 1,800 abortions that have taken place in the United States alone. Uh, since 1973, in the United States, there has been just shy of 58 million abortions. Uh, now, that is a massive number. And, you know, if you think about it, the, the, the U.S. population is about 300 million people. So that's one-sixth of the population that has just been eliminated uh, from ever being able to have a voice. Uh, in the United States, just this year, in 2015, there was just shy of 500,000 abortions. And worldwide, this year, there was over 18 million abortions. And that's across every single country. Uh, and these numbers, they're just staggering. And uh, if you look at this from the statistics from 1980 to today, so about 35 years, there's been over 1.3 billion abortions. Now you think about this the population of the world is about 7 billion. So these are large, insane kind of numbers. And it's something that with this much amount of uh, travesty and suffering that's going on, it's worth discussing. And I understand it makes people feel uncomfortable, but it's a conversation that must be had. And God isn't shy. God doesn't shy away from citing these kind of uh, examples and telling us what's prohibited and what's not prohibited. And this is something that the Quran speaks very uh, firmly on. Uh, God tells us twice in the Quran not to kill our children. Um, and the first one is in chapter 6, verse 151. It reads, say, Come, let me tell you what your Lord has really prohibited for you. You shall not set up idols beside him. You shall honor your parents. You shall not kill your children from fear of poverty. We provide for you and for them. You shall not commit gross sins, obvious or hidden. You shall not kill. God has made life sacred, except in the course of justice. These are his commandments to you that you may understand. So God is telling us not to kill our children. And what's interesting is that it cites the example due to fear of poverty. Now, 75% of women who were polled after an abortion, uh, they said that the reason that they carried through with the abortion was because they were scared that they couldn't provide for their child. Now, this is the reality, is that God provides not only for the mother, but for the child as well. God is the provider. God is the one who sets the provisions. Now, the other aspect that's interesting is that, uh, according to the CDC in 2011, 85.5% of all abortions were from unmarried women. Right? So these are women who were not married and they chose to have an abortion. That's 85.5%. Now that is a massive number. right? That is a massive amount. And this is the reason that God comes down so hard against adultery. is because the outcome of an adult, uh, a, uh, adultery is the possibility of a life. Now, if 
Adultery caused the death of a life. This is something that we have to take very seriously. And when we look at those numbers, right, you're, you're talking about 1.3 billion uh, murders, right, uh, for abortion since 1980 worldwide. This is not something to be taken lightly, right? Adultery is a very serious act, and it's not something that should be done passively. And it's something as uh, believers, as submitters, as a society, we need to have the highest level of moral integrity. And again, God talks about abortion in chapter 17, verse 31 through 33. It says, abortion is murder. It says, you shall not kill your children due to fear of poverty. We provide for them as well as for you. Killing them is a gross offense. You shall not commit adultery. It is a gross sin and an evil behavior. You shall not kill any person, for God has made life sacred, except in the course of justice. If one is killed unjustly, then we give his heir authority to enforce justice. Thus, he shall not exceed the limits in avenging the murder. He will be helped. Now, this is the, the uh, one of the interesting uh, matters of abortion, is that you can't, uh, we talked about this before in the Quran Liberty podcast, is that you cannot legislate morality. It's not like you pass a law and then all of a sudden people just start acting morally, right? You can pass a law and say stealing's prohibited. Doesn't mean that stealing, you know, everyone's going to stop stealing tomorrow. Uh, and abortion is a perfect example of this. You know, countries that actually outlaw abortion have very high rates of abortion. Um, and it's something as a society we have to grow to understand that this is a, a very vile, you know, kind of disturbing act. And again, it's showing how we treat the lowest members of society, the unborn children, if we're willing to abort them, to, to basically eliminate their life without having them have a voice. And God consistently throughout the Quran is providing a voice to the lowest members of society, you know, be it uh, the unborn child, be it orphans, be it women, uh, be it the traveling alien, the immigrants, right? God is constantly advocating for these individuals because God realizes that these individuals are the easiest targets for society to neglect and to treat badly. And if you look at just some of the stats uh, that are out there, so we saw that 85.5% of all abortions are from unmarried women. You know, and this is the reason that God comes down so hard uh, against adultery. And according to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, over 44% of women had repeat abortions, of which 20% of all abortions were from women who had more than three abortions. You see that there's a trend in people who have abortions is that a lot of it is repeat. And this just shows that they, they, there is, you know, their consciousness is not kicking in, that they don't see this as a vile, disgusting, horrid act, and they think of this as something that's like passive. And as a society, we need to elevate ourselves. We need to think about this critically and come to the realization that this is something that we shouldn't stand for. So I made a compilation of four different videos. Uh, each one talks about a different subject matter in regards to abortion. Uh, the first one is from uh, uh, former Congressman Ron Paul. And uh, Congressman Ron Paul was a uh, obstetrician and a gynecologist uh, who had a private practice. I think he delivered over like 4,000 uh, children. And uh, he's a very uh, avid vocal uh, individual against abortion. And um, so the first clip is going to be from him. Uh, the second clip comes from uh, a, a documentary called Blood Money, The Business of Abortion. And um, this one, it actually goes and peeks inside what it's like from these uh, abortion clinics. And um, it's interviews from people who, you know, uh, went down that path, had an abortion clinic, and then basically uh, 
came to realization of just how horrible and disgusting of an act this is. And uh, it really shines light on the industry because that's what it is. It's an industry. And then the, uh, the third video is from uh, a piece about Margaret Sanger. Now, many people don't know the name Margaret Sanger, but I'm sure you're familiar with the institution if you're in the United States. Uh, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood, and uh, her background is quite fascinating. Uh, so in a nutshell, she came from a background of uh, eugenics. And what eugenics is, it's the same thing that Hitler proposed, is that certain life, human life, is inferior to the other ones. And in her perspective, this inferior life of basically certain races and certain classes uh, should be banned from breeding. And that was her motivation for creating a Planned Parenthood. And um, the last piece, I'm going to hold off from talking about that until uh, the, uh, the other one, but the most common argument you hear against uh, for people who advocate abortion is what about uh, you know abortion from rape or incest? And it's a documentary on uh, the perspective of the individuals uh, who were raped and had children or um, uh, were the offspring of rape. And it's a fascinating documentary. So uh, apologies if this is a, a little too dark or grim. Uh, for some of the listeners, but it's something that it's worth. It, it we we need to be uh, having this conversation. We need to be open to this and receptive towards this. So, God willing, we're going to start with the uh, uh, piece from uh, Congressman Ron Paul, and then uh, on to the next one. Dr. Ron Paul, more than four thousand babies delivered, a man of faith, committed to protecting life. This whole notion of uh, life not being valuable just is something I was never able to accept. I happened to walked into an operating room where they were doing a uh, an abortion on a late pregnancy. They lifted out a small baby that was able to cry and breathe, and they put it in a little bucket and put it in the corner of the room and pretended it wasn't there. I walked down the hallway, and a baby was born early, slightly bigger than the baby that they just put in a bucket. They wanted to save this baby. So they might have had 10 doctors in there doing everything conceivable. Who are we to decide that we pick and throw one away and pick up and struggle to save the other ones? Unless we resolve this and understand that life is precious and we must protect life, we can't protect liberty. So the uh, next piece is from the documentary Blood Money, The Business of Abortion. Uh, you can find it on uh, Amazon. God willing, I'm going to put up a link for that as well. And it's narrated by uh, Elvita King, who was Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter. And the interview is with Carol Everts. Uh, Carol was a former independent abortion clinic owner, and uh, this is her story. We had a whole plan that sold abortions, and it was called sex education. Break down their natural modesty, separate them from their parents and their values, and become the sex expert in their life so they turn to us when we would give them a low-dose birth control pill they would get pregnant on or a defective condom because we didn't buy the most expensive condoms. We bought the cheapest condoms. Our goal was three to five abortions from every girl between the ages of 13 and 18. We gave them a low-dose birth control pill that in order to provide any level of activity had to be taken at the same time every single day. The girl wouldn't take it accurately, and if you miss that thing, the protection is out of her system. The sexual activity goes from zero or once a week to five to seven times a week. She doesn't take the pill properly. She gets pregnant. And who does she call when she's pregnant? She calls us. We're the experts. And we were ready. 
We used a script designed to overcome every single objection. That's what sales is. Overcome the objection and you get the order, in this case, the abortion. And uh, when she calls, the first question is reassure. And so the girl confesses, I think I may be pregnant. And the counselor, is, who's really a telemarketer, that's all they're trying to do, sell over the telephone, but we call them counselors, says, we can take care of your problem. No one needs to know. And then the first question, what's the first day of your last normal period? And she gives this so-called counselor the date, and she says you're eight weeks pregnant. She didn't say you might be eight weeks pregnant. She didn't say you could be. She said you are eight weeks pregnant. So she has planted the first seed in this long marketing thread. And the sad thing is, in this girl's mind, she is the expert. This is the pregnancy expert. And the next question is, is this good news or bad news? If it were good news, she would not be calling an abortion clinic. It's bad news. And when she replies bad news, this counselor moves right in because now she wants to identify the fear, to use it to reaffirm that abortion decision anytime that girl moves away. And if she says, well, maybe, maybe I need to think about this. Your parents will kill you. You'll have to miss drill team. The abortion's sold. Now, abortions are done through all nine months of pregnancy, not because of Roe v. Wade, but because of Doe v. Bolte that said for the health of the mother, an abortion can be completed through all nine months of pregnancy. But the problem was that health was defined as mental health. And we would say to this scared young woman, you would have problems with this pregnancy should you carry it to term, wouldn't you? She'd say yes, and we'd chart it emotional health. While these lawyers were calling for the right of choice for women, Where's the choice when only one option is offered? That's an essential fallacy in the woman's so-called right to choose. In most cases, it's not a choice at all. A decision is reached without all the facts or based on misinformation. Other options are not presented and a deadly course of action is forced on a woman. We have to talk about um, something that uses lies, uh, coercion. The number one slogan for abortion is pro-choice. And the ironic thing about that slogan is that when you ask women who had abortions, why did you have that abortion? The number one response is, I felt that I had no choice. A majority, maybe upwards of 80% of abortions in America happen with some form of coercion. In other words, not the woman's choice. I had this one lady that called me one afternoon and she said that she wanted to make an appointment for her daughter to come in and have an abortion. I said, does she want to have the abortion? Well, you know, it's not her, it's not her choice. So I went to a counselor, a Christian counselor, and she kept saying I needed to have an abortion, and then this was not a good thing for me to do, and it wasn't going to be good for my kids. Then I told my fiancé, then I told my mother, then I told my other family members. All of a sudden, everybody's like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you don't want to do this, this is not good for the kids, this is not good for you, this is not good for our marriage, I don't want to raise this child. It would have been somebody who would have changed the dynamic of our family and the relationships that they would have created would have changed everyone that they interacted with but they're not here in abortion it's not about choice it's about despair it's not about people who are getting abortions because of freedom of choice it's about people getting abortions because they feel they have no freedom and no choice through conversations with him him pushing the abortion and then um, that kind of frustrated me at some point. I just got, I felt, I don't know, I just felt like he didn't care about me, that he was just thinking about 
like, let's fix this. That's exactly his words. We need to fix this. But I was in fear and in crisis and at that point that I felt like I had no choice. Women are the victims. Um, in a lot of these cases, women are coerced and in crisis mode and regret what they've, the decision that they've made. Women feel threatened that if they don't have an abortion, um, their lives will be punished for it. Um, the stories of the boyfriend saying, I'll give you the $300 and our, our relationship will continue if you have the abortion. If you choose to keep the baby, there's the door. I was dating a young man and we got pregnant. And the first words out of his mouth to me were, you're not having it, are you? And I remember that sinking feeling in my heart and I thought, well, no, I guess not. And I was felt so much pressure. Absolutely do not think that my choice was a choice. I think it was, like I said before, I think it was felt like an ultimatum. They're all screaming at me. It felt like they were screaming at me. They were constantly insisting, you've got to kill him, you've got to abort him, you can't do this, you've got to go to the clinic, you've got to hurry up. Every week that you wait is making it worse. Go, 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 go. And I finally couldn't take all of their pressure and how supposedly I'm going to make everybody's life miserable. It was relentless. It was like I couldn't even go through the day without hearing them, whether they were actually speaking to me or I'm just remembering something they said to me a couple of hours ago. I mean, they just bombarded me with it. So I guess I have to bear this burden so that everybody else can. We had a 12-year-old. She came in chewing her gum and looked so carefree. She had her abortion. She came back two weeks later for her checkup. Didn't come out of the room, didn't come out of the room, opened the door, and she was in there. She'd brought, a, brought in a piece of glass and slitting her wrist. Twelve years old. But we all have that moment where we realize that we are moms and we killed our children. It's pretty sick. It's a sick feeling. Warnings are rarely offered. Women are seldom told the full story of what they're getting into when they authorize an abortionist to kill the baby inside of them. Even if the known consequences and after effects like breast cancer, barrenness, and other female trauma, even if it only impacts half the women or a quarter of the women, wouldn't it be better to let them know what they might suffer from their choice? Wouldn't it still be wise to let them know every potential risk. The government mandates warnings on every other potential danger. Every pack of cigarettes, every alcoholic beverage, every package of medication carries a warning of potential health risks. Why not a warning on something so life-changing, so life-threatening as an abortion? So that's a uh, pretty graphic and uh, pretty uh, disturbing uh, hearing firsthand accounts as far as what it's like to uh, to own and operate a uh, uh, abortion clinic and just the motivations behind it and just how twisted the whole act is. Um, if you want to watch the whole thing, there's a good chunk of it on YouTube, uh, but otherwise you probably have to go online and purchase it from uh, uh, from Amazon. But definitely worth uh, worth listening to. The next one that we're going to be listening to is in regards to Margaret uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, some people outside the United States might not be familiar with Margaret Sanger or Planned Parenthood, but in the United States, the, the, the entity Planned Parenthood is synonymous 
with abortion. And a lot of people don't realize the disturbing background behind Margaret Sanger and the reasons that she decided to uh, create Planned Parenthood. Uh, and um, this piece is going to explain some of that. I'm Michael Hitchborn, and this is the American Life League Report. The federal government already funnels hundreds of millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood every year, so it should come as no surprise when it funnels your money to celebrate its founder. The Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery recently opened a new federally funded exhibit that, according to the museum's curator, celebrates women who have challenged and changed America over the past century. Included in the list is notorious liberal feminist Margaret Sanger. The National Portrait Gallery website provides a brief description of Sanger, describing a concerned crusader who fought with the courage of a wounded tiger for the promotion of birth control. What the Smithsonian exhibit fails to mention, however, is that Margaret Sanger founded the largest abortion chain in the country, now known as Planned Parenthood. But the exhibit also fails to explain the racist ideology behind Sanger's promotion of birth control. Many people don't really know what eugenics is. Eugenics is defined as belief in the possibility of improving the qualities of the human species by discouraging reproduction by persons having genetic defects or presumed to have inheritable, undesirable traits. Essentially, eugenics is the creation of a master race by controlling who has children and who doesn't. An article appearing in the January 31, 1922 edition of the New York Times bore the headline, Mrs. Sanger says Superman is the aim of birth control. If creating a race of supermen is the goal, who did Sanger believe had genetic defects or undesirable traits that stood in the way? In his book, Birth Control, Facts and Responsibilities, Adolf Meyer quoted an essay Sanger wrote in 1925, entitled, The Need of Birth Control in America. Birth control is not merely an individual problem. It is not merely a national question. It concerns the whole wide world, the ultimate destiny of the human race. In his last book, Mr. H.G. Wells speaks of the meaningless, aimless lives which cram this world of ours. Hordes of people who are born, who live, yet who have done absolutely nothing to advance the race one iota. Their lives are hopeless repetitions. All that they have said has been said before. All that they have done has been done better before. Such human weeds clog up the path, drain up the energies and the resources of this little earth. We must clear the way for a better world. We must cultivate our garden. In 1922, Sanger wrote a book entitled The Pivot of Civilization. In it is a chapter called The Cruelty of Charity, where she blasts programs that provide medical and nursing facilities to slum mothers as insidiously injurious. In the same book, Sanger called for the cessation of charity, for the segregation of morons, misfits, and the maladjusted, and for the sterilization of genetically inferior races. She also argued that organized attempts to help the poor was the surest sign that our civilization has bred, is breeding, and is perpetuating defectives, delinquents, and dependents. The Birth Control Review was Sanger's official publication for the American Birth Control League, and in 1932 she outlined her plan for peace. The main objectives 
of the Population Congress would be to apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is already tainted, to give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization, and to apportion farmlands and homesteads for these segregated persons where they would be taught to work under competent instructors for the period of their entire lives. Sanger's admiration for the eugenics programs of Nazi Germany were well known at the time. In 1933, the Birth Control Review published Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need, by Ernst Rudin, who was Hitler's director of genetic sterilization and the founder of the Nazi Society for Racial Hygiene. In her praise for the eugenics programs in Germany, Sanger called for the implementation of such programs in the United States, specifically targeting African Americans. The following editorial was published in the 1932 issue of the Birth Control Review. The Negro problem is one of the most complicated and important confronting America. Whatever the ultimate answer may be, such an attitude brings to light the function of birth control as a necessary agency in its solution. The present submerged condition of the Negro is due in large part to the high fertility of the race under disastrously adverse circumstances. Thus, the question arises to what extent birth control has had a eugenic effect upon the Negro race. If any question should remain about Sanger's racist agenda, a 1939 letter she wrote to Dr. Clarence Gamble should remove all doubt. We should hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is a man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Can there be any wonder why Planned Parenthood opens its facilities in poor inner-city neighborhoods populated by minorities? Can there be any doubt that Sanger's philosophy of creating a pure race is what fuels Planned Parenthood's support of embryonic stem cell research? Margaret Sanger was a racist. She's responsible for the millions of babies that have been ethnically cleansed from our country and should not be celebrated by the taxpayer-funded Smithsonian. Please visit the website and contact the Smithsonian demanding that materials on Sanger be removed from the exhibit. For American Life League, I'm Michael Hitchborn. So this last piece is from a documentary entitled Children Born of Rape and Incest. And one of the arguments that you hear a lot when you debate with people in regards to the uh, morality of abortion is this concept of, oh, well, what would you say if someone was uh, raped, you know, should they be allowed to have an abortion? Now, ultimately, the decision's always up to the, uh, the individual. Uh, what God advocates is what's best for us. And if we take God's word, we'll trust in God. Now, what's interesting is that what you rarely hear and what I find so fascinating about this documentary is that what is it like to be the, uh, the, the woman who basically 
went through such a uh, vile, disgusting act, be it rape or incest, uh, and decided to carry through with that pregnancy. And what is it like for that child who was brought up in the world through such circumstances? Now, these are horrible, horrible circumstances to be in. But the reality is that these individuals, this entity, didn't choose those circumstances, right? This, they, they didn't make the choice that that's how they wanted to enter into this world. But what was it like for them uh, despite this? And this documentary gives a voice to these individuals. I learned at 18 that I was conceived when my birth mother was abducted by a serial rapist. I didn't know the details. All I knew was that he was Caucasian and of large build. And I thought, that sounds like a police description. And my caseworker confirmed with me that she had been raped. And the police referred her to a rape counselor. And the rape counselor suggested an abortion. My birth mother's sister helped to schedule abortions. She made it clear to me when we met that if abortion had been legal, she would have aborted me. Even if she had to do it all over again, she said when I asked her. And that was, of course, devastating to hear. Now, my birth mother actually changed her mind about that six years later. She told me that when, after my niece had a baby, her first great-grandchild out of a unplanned teenage pregnancy, my birth mother told me that she had changed her mind about abortion. When people make the rape exception, or when they say that they're pro-choice, especially in cases of rape, that's like saying to me that I think your mother should have been able to abort you, which is like saying, if I had my way, you'd be dead right now. And some people would say, you know, it, it's nothing against you personally. Well, it affects me personally. old, I was a senior in high school. I attended a Halloween party at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. There was a, a man that had come back with us and had, had agreed to get a ride from wherever we were going as to not inconvenience us. So when we got back there, um, everyone kind of went to bed behind closed doors and um, that night the same man uh, drugged and he raped me. A few weeks later, um, I, I found out I was pregnant. And um, I just, I wanted it, I, I wanted it over. I wanted it, it wasn't my fault. And I didn't deserve to, you know, have all this struggle and, and turmoil in my life um, because of someone else's choice. Society tells me, tells the world that you can't bring a rape baby into it, you know, that the, there's something wrong with these children and that they don't deserve to be alive. They don't deserve life. Um, you know, society would have robbed me. Had I listened, you know, had I gone with the flow, in a vulnerable situation, had I done what society told me to do, I would have been robbed of so much joy and, and, and so much healing. Um, but you know, that would have been nothing compared to what my son would have been robbed of. And, and that's his life, you know, his, his, his chance to love and, and laugh and, and be whoever he wants to be. 
When I was 12 years old, I was, uh, I was walking down the street and I was adopted. I was brutally raped by two men and I became pregnant. And I used to feel like my life had no value and that it was my fault. And it doesn't matter how many times I used to shower, I was feeling so dirty and I wanted to kill myself. I was taken to the hospital and the doctor told me that I was pregnant from the rape and that I should have an abortion, that it was my right, that I did not have to live with the consequences of the rape and that the baby will always remind me what I went through. And I asked the doctor, if I had the abortion, would I forget the rape? Would I forget all the pain and suffering? And he said, no. So then I thought, why should I kill my baby? Why should I give my baby the death penalty when it wasn't my baby's fault? And just knowing that it was inside of me, I knew that it was only my baby. So I kept my baby. And um, when I had my baby grow, she gave me hope and she helped me to go on in my life. When she was a little girl, she used to tell me, Mommy, thank you for giving me life. Thank you for keeping me. And that's when I realized that she was the one who gave me my life back. Chene now is a 22-year-old woman. She's a beautiful woman, very caring, and she helped me to move on, and she helped me to heal. And I never saw my rapist through my daughter because she showed me that it was a different person that had nothing to do with that night. I think abortion in cases of rape is like a double rape to yourself because on the first rape you had no control over that, but if you had the abortion you had the control to choose life over killing somebody. So my daughter has been helping me to become a better person. I cannot imagine being with my daughter. I, she's part of me and we grew up together and you know, with all the pain and suffering, if I had to go through that again, I will just to love my daughter because she saved me. And even that it was very hard and it wasn't easy, I would definitely go through that again. At the age of 17, after having lived most of my life in an abusive situation with extended family, uh, I conceived through incestuous rape. I, uh, I was very confused and I was very pressured by family members and by friends around me to abort my child. I had been raised in the church uh, I was a born-again Christian, and I understood that this was a life, and I understood at 17 years old that I wasn't going to take that life. I had an aunt and uncle that were very instrumental in helping me make decisions about keeping my child or adopting my child out, but very supportive in not aborting. I also had a minister that helped me to find a place to go and live. Uh, I went to a Salvation Army maternity home and lived there for the duration of my pregnancy. And the Salvation Army did see to my, my clothing, my food, my medical care. My child was conceived in rape. That doesn't make her less than human. My child has been a huge blessing in my life. She's been the light of my life, and she's been the reason that I've become the human being that I am. Had I had an abortion, I would have remained in the situation that I was in. And my pregnancy and my daughter gave me purpose. It gave me something to strive for and it gave me hope for a better life. The idea that a woman who is raped has a right to kill a child 
is completely negative. It doesn't help the woman and it doesn't help the baby. A woman is stronger than that. A woman does not need to be told she should kill a child in order to feel better about what happened. It's not going to make the rape go away. It just means that now I've been raped and now I'm the mother of a dead baby also. It just heaps insult upon injury. Women are stronger than this. Women don't need to abort their children in order to uh, get past a rape. Their children will help them get past a rape. Producing life and producing something very positive from a negative experience is very empowering for a woman to do. When people use rape as an excuse for abortion to be legal, it makes my skin literally crawl because I know that it's not an excuse because I lived it firsthand. The abortion did not make my rape any better. In fact, it made it a hundred times worse because not only was I dealing with killing my child, it was constant nightmares about the rape over and over and over again. The two mashed together. I could never get over the rape fully because I was also having to deal with the abortion. So, God willing, we're going to end there. Uh, hopefully this was insightful, and uh, apologies if this was a little too morbid for some people. But again, it's a conversation that is definitely worth having. Uh, God doesn't shy away from citing these kind of uh, examples, and it's something that we should be comfortable uh, discussing. Um, if you got any comments or questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. Uh, to check out our Cron Study notes, go to crontstudy19.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.